Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome. My name is Eric Hoffman, one of the executive pastors here. And uh, I'm a child of the 80s. Any other child of the 80s here? Okay, yeah, yeah, representing strong here. Being a child of the 80s at sporting events, you may recognize this sign. Um, I remember growing up and, you know, every like NFL game, you know, there's some PGA Tour, NBA, all those things. Um, this, was, this was a sign. It was very popular uh, that you'd be watching an event in John 316 would be up there. And I, I do remember actually being intrigued of like, you know, what's going on? What's the story? Is it the same person? And, you know, just a little bit of the backstory on that. There was a, a guy, uh, he called himself the Rainbow Man, uh, Roland Stewart. Um, and he, before, before he came to Christ, he, he would go to every sporting event and wanted to be famous, but no one know who he was. He wanted to be the most famous, unfamous person in the, in the world, I guess was his goal. It's a kind of weird goal. But he came to faith and then he started um, taking these signs to every sporting event um, as a way to, you know, get John 3.16 out. And uh, his life took a weird turn, um, started believing some, you know, paranoid things or whatever. And anyway, ended up uh, getting arrested, having a hostage in a hotel in L.A. So his story uh, took a weird, weird turn. But uh, I tell all of that, yeah, I tell all of that to say, like, you may have, it, that his idea, his concept is kind of like, carried on. It's kind of become a cultural icon. You think about if you ever shopped at Forever 21 and uh, on their bag is John 316. Uh, I've never been to In-N-Out Burgers, but apparently In-N-Out at the bottom of the cup, is it the cup? Um, John 316 is on every cup. Tim Tebow, you know, is underneath his eyes. It's kind of become this cultural, you know, icon thing. I was watching uh, College Game Day the other weekend, and there's this huge banner of John 316. And the thing is, it's become the most popular verse in the Bible um, but many have no idea its context or its meaning. And it's been kind of pulled out and, you know, just kind of been this, this address. And so today, uh, I want to talk about, you know, what does John 16 really mean? What, is, what does that belief really mean? And so we're going to get really clear on that. John 3.16 is a biblical address that points to a single statement of truth, contains the essence of the entire gospel, and brings every person to a personal decision. I'm going to read that again. It's a biblical address that points to a single uh, statement of truth that contains the essence of the gospel that brings every person to a personal decision. When you're doing this message, it's going to be a little different, uh, different than normal. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the gospel of John, and, and we, we teach expository teaching. It's a way of teaching where we take a section of scripture and pull out the, the meaning, the original meaning of that, and then what does it mean for us today? And so we've been walking through the gospel of John Today, we're just going to look at one verse. We're just going to look at John 3.16. Uh, Rob and I synced up on this message just so we could be so clear and united on kind of how we're presenting this and together. But we think it's so important with the relevance of what John 3.16 has become in our culture to get really, really clear on, on what does John 3.16 mean. And, and we hope that, you know, you will leave this morning with that personal decision, of, of belief for you. You know, Lloyd left uh, last week uh, with a cliffhanger and, you know, looking at the story of Nicodemus. And, and the question that Lloyd asked, which was, you know, are you born again? That was, that was the question that he left all of us in this room and the tension with Nicodemus' story and the tension that he left us in this room. So I'm going to pick up where Lloyd left off and, and talk about um, what we're going to be looking at of how do you know if you are born again? What does, what does biblical belief 
um, look like for us? And so what, we want to answer that question. We want to answer that question so clearly. In summary of last week, in Jesus, God made a provision for us all because all of us need a rescue, a Savior. Jesus is our provision, and this provision requires belief. So what does that saving belief mean, and how do you know if you are born again? That's what the questions we're going to answer today. So let's look at John 3.16 together. If you have your scriptures or your notebooks, you can pull that out. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, to understand John 3.16 correctly, we need to understand it in its context. And I think that's one of the things that I want to highlight today is when you just have, you know, this address for people to go to, they're, they're kind of pulling something out of a particular context. So what is the context that we find John 3.16? Well, it's the context of Jesus speaking to a specific person. That's the context, Nicodemus. He's talking to a specific person, and this is addressing Nicodemus intentionally with this. Now, Nicodemus' story, verses 1 through 15, which if you didn't listen to last week, Lloyd talks about Nicodemus and, and who he was. But Nicodemus was not just a, a Pharisee. He wasn't just a religious leader. He was one of the top people of the Pharisees. He was a teacher of the law. This is somebody who, who grew up memorizing Torah and was such an exceptional student that he was pulled out by a rabbi, trained under a rabbi, became a rabbi himself, and is now teacher of rabbis. Okay, so he is a He's a Jew of a Jew of a Jew. He's, he is a highly intelligent man. He is a, a leader within the Pharisees. Now, I want you to think about the Pharisees. The Pharisees were uh, opposing Jesus at every turn. In every place of the, in the Gospels that we see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are opposing Jesus and what he is doing. But, but notice Nicodemus recognizes that Jesus is a teacher sent from God. So, so Nicodemus, there's something happening in Nicodemus. He recognizes that Jesus, there's something different about Jesus. He's a teacher sent from God. But why, you think about why did Nicodemus come in the middle of the night? He didn't want to be seen by the other Pharisees and, and the opposition, and he knew. And so he has these questions, and he wants to interact with Jesus. So he comes at night and interacts with Jesus. So Nicodemus believes that, that he is his teacher. Now, the first thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus, if you have your scriptures, go back to verse three. Jesus says this to Nicodemus. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, think about how upsetting and disruptive what he just said to Nicodemus would be. How disruptive this would be. Nicodemus uh, believed that his theology, that your first birth that being born a Jew was the most important thing, that who your father was, what tribe you were in, being, being a Jew was, was what got you into the kingdom. You're God's chosen people. And Jesus is saying, no, your first birth is not sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. That would have just like, man, that would have rocked Nicodemus's world. I want you to, I want you to hear that. Like that would have been like, like, this is the first time probably that Nicodemus would have ever thought that he wasn't in the kingdom of God. Like this would be the first time that Nicodemus would be bumping. Like think about how disruptive this would be if you are a teacher of the law, you've dedicated your whole life to this, you're obedient to the Torah, you're teaching other people, you know, you're, you're the pinnacle in society. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, it's not your first birth that gets you into the kingdom of God. I mean, his world would have been just turned upside down 
Now, uh, I want you to think about like how, how can we identify with Nicodemus? Well, being in the Bible Belt, being, you know, being where in, a, in a place where there's churches all around, many of us in this room have probably grown up in the church. Many of us in this room can probably identify with Nicodemus of what it, of what it means to know all the Bible stories, to even know some songs of Father Abraham. You know, you know, all, the, you know all the tunes, you know all the stories. Um, in talking with many of you, one of the things that um, many of you describe your upbringing of, you know, you had Christian parents who, who brought you to church often, and you, you describe it this way. is like, my parents, we were the last ones to leave the church, and anytime the church doors were open, we were there. Does that describe anyone's upbringing? Okay, so many heads are nodding, okay? You can identify with Nicodemus in this. Has it ever occurred to you that just because you grew up in the church and you had Christian parents, that you may be outside of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is disrupting Nicodemus's life with. If what he's saying here and what he's saying to each of us in this room is it's not your heritage that saves you. It's not your parents' faith. It's, it's good that you were brought up in the church, but that's not going to church doesn't save you. And now you have kids and now you're bringing them to church maybe. And I'm just gonna tell you, Jesus is saying that doesn't save you. It's not your first birth and, and the family that you're born in or trying to be a good person or be a, a good kid or growing up and, and doing the right things. That's not what saves you. And Jesus is gonna disrupt us in this text as well. And it, 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 it may be disrupting you right now. Of like, well, what does save me? I mean, I've grown up. I tried to do all the right things. I've tried to perform for God. I tried to, you know, I was moral. I avoided certain things all my life. I mean, I've grown up in generations of, of Christians. Jesus says this, it's only if you're born again. It's only if you have had a spiritual rebirth. So in this passage, you can just sense that Nicodemus is this intellectual learned man who has been following, trying to follow God's word, following the Torah and teaching others, is, is really wrestling with this. How do we know that he's wrestling with this? Look at verse 9. He asks a question of Jesus. How can this be? Like what you're saying, how can this be? And I want to I say that we know that Nicodemus is close to the kingdom of God because of the question that he asked. Nicodemus, I believe, is coming to the end of his rope. He's seeing that what he has counted on his whole life is not sufficient. And I just want to, I just want to say to you in this room, like, our self-sufficiency is not enough. Trying to just be good or, or, or coming to church or doing religious activities or praying enough or reading your Bible or knowing the, the right answers to things is not enough. And so when you come to the end of your rope, when you hit this wall like Nicodemus did, you might be asking, how can this be then? How, how are you saved? How are you born again? Like that's what Nicodemus is wrestling with. Jesus has disrupted him and now he's asking these questions. And I believe that is, that is what we all need to do. Knowledge about God was Nicodemus's identity. His first birth was his identity. And now Jesus is bringing this disruption and inviting him to faith in him. It's important that we see what Jesus is doing with Nicodemus. Jesus is not disrupting Nicodemus in a way of shaming him 
He's not in a, disrupting him in a way that he's angry at him. How is he doing it? He is boldly, he is boldly coming before Nicodemus and disrupting him because he loves him. And he wants him to see who he is and invite him into the kingdom of God. And guys, that is what Jesus does with each and every one of us. You are not in this room by accident. Somebody may have invited you to church today. Maybe you're an out-of-town guest and you're coming here and you're just like, well, I guess I'll go with them. You are not here by accident. Jesus brings things into our life to disrupt us in order that we can see the invitation to know him and follow him. And it's, that is a beautiful, loving invitation. We, we have created this video of many uh, of people in fellowship who, um, who have had this disruption happen in their lives where Jesus, there's th- something that happened in their lives that disrupted them. They came to the end of themselves. They hit this wall. They realized their self-sufficiency is no longer going to work. And I want you to watch this first part of this video to hear their stories of disruption. So my life before Christ would be, uh, I was basically selfish, self-absorbed. I was white-knuckling life, living for the weekend. I don't know that I ever understood what the word faith meant. I went to Catholic school for all 12 years of my education. It created a, a cycle of guilt and shame that just replayed itself constantly. Before I met Jesus, I felt that I had to be in control of everything. I had a lot of opinions and beliefs about Christians. They thought they did nothing wrong, but we all did. I remember distinctly one time, it was a, it was a Sunday. Um, I was on my couch a little hungover from the night before. I had a stark realization that this is not how I need to be living. Um, I worked with an individual named Javier, and I saw the way he lived his life. He was living out the gospel, and I began to study and thought I could do it alone. I was literally uh, practicing to be a Christian, but only in my head. God sent a woman to come and get me. It was the first time in my life that anybody ever explained the gospel to me. And you know what? Grace made me angry. I thought, you gotta be kidding me. That can't be right. My first daughter, she lived for three days. And that rocked my world. As a product of the late 60s and early 70s, it was really cool to be a rebel. And I wore that mantle pretty well. I headed off to college, and I wanted to be a graphic designer, mostly because my art teacher in high school told me I'd never make it. And I said, I'll show you, because rebellion was in my nature. My wife, she was pregnant with our youngest. The doctor told us a couple months later that she would have the baby and probably lose her life. She made the choice very quickly to have the baby, and she did. Two years later, lost her life. About a month later, my son went into the hospital with some stomach aches, and they found out that he had a mass in his stomach. And the doctor said he didn't know what it was, it didn't look good, and said, we'll keep him overnight. And that was it, that was a tipping point and I went to war, I went to war with God. Each of those people came to a place of disruption. 
whether that was a, a loss of a child, whether that was everything they've grown up with, just, you know, grace made them angry. Um, there was a place where they came to the end of themselves, of self-sufficiency, was no longer going to get them anywhere. And that is what all of us have in common. None of us are born believing in Jesus. None of us are, are choosing that. We're, we're born with our hearts wired towards independence. The story of the scriptures is that we would see what is good in our own eyes and choose what is good in our own eyes outside of God's provision. We all have a tendency to do that. We're all, we're all born into this broken world where brokenness and hardship are all around us. We're born lost, not found. We're born into a world that has those stories magnified over and over again. So the first thing that John 3.16 tells us is that God so loved the world. Let that sink in. God so loved the world. God loves this place that has sickness and death and brokenness. And God doesn't just, he doesn't love the brokenness. He doesn't love the evil. He doesn't love the sickness. What does he love? The people who are in the world. So out of his great love, he gives his only son, his one and only son. Jesus enters into the suffering, enters into the futility of this life. And here's the, here's the thing I just want to say. If any world religion, there is no religion where God comes to man. It is always man striving to try to, to perform for a God and hoping that it's enough. In, in, this, in this verse, it tells us that God in his great love did not let us stay in the suffering, did not just let us just try to figure things out on our own. But what does God do? He enters in. He becomes incarnate. He dwells among us, Emmanuel, God with us. He took on flesh that we would have no confusion of who this God is that created everything, that we would have no confusion of how to enter into relationship with him, of how to be restored, of how to be renewed, of how to have a new birth in him. God came to man. God loved us before we ever loved him. So God so loved the world that he sent his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him. It's so open. It's so invitational. It's so inclusive. So who gets eternal life? Who joins back with God? Who is restored? Who is adopted back as his sons and daughters? Who is redeemed? It's whoever believes in him. Not just whoever believes. It's whoever believes in him, his son. He wants you to be with him. It's where the heaven space and the earth space collides in Jesus that we can be with him. Now track with me through the story of Nicodemus. It's in context with Nicodemus. He's speaking directly to him. He's saying, no one is born into the kingdom of God by their first birth. You are born into a world of darkness. And so in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. Something you cannot do on your own. It has to be something that God does for you. And just like your first birth, it's not something that you 
can do on your own. This is a work of God. And that happens when you believe, not just believing anything, but believing in his son who is sent to rescue you, to restore you, to reconcile you back to God. So how do you become born again? Believe in him, the one whom God has sent, his son. Who can be born again? Whosoever believes. It's this open invitation. So the question that I think we all must be asking Well, what does it mean to believe in him? What does it mean to believe? If it's open to everyone, if you must be born again, then what does it mean to believe? So here's where I want to be really, really clear. I believe that the way people talk about what it it means to believe in Jesus varies greatly from person to person. There's a a Barna research survey that just came back, and and it says that over 60% of Americans say they believe in Jesus and that they are Christians. Surprising me <laughs> based, on, based on our culture. But the thing is, when they ask the next question, what does it mean to believe and what does it mean to be a Christian? The answers just go scattered everywhere. And so I just want to bring us together and be so clear that when the Bible is talking about belief, what is it talking about? How can you know what biblical belief means of a response to this this great invitation out of God's love? What does it mean? How can we know for certain? Let me just speak um, from my heart, just as from a pastor who's been been your pastor at this congregation for 12 and a half years. I've had, um, we have this process where when we're doing membership of people who want to join in, into the church or in baptism where we, where we sit down and we talk to people about, hey, how did you come to faith in Jesus? And it started happening over and over again. Not, very few people will enter in that, that conversation saying they're not a, a believer. And so I'm, I'm having a conversation with them and we're sitting, we're sitting down and we're just talking about how they came to faith, how, how they came to put their trust in Jesus. And the thing that I started hearing over and over again were things like this. I've always believed in Jesus. There wasn't ever a time in my life where I wasn't a Christian. And I know what they mean. I know what they mean. It means, it means it, the positive of that is that they grew up in the church and they had parents who loved them and, and taught them about Jesus. But the thing is, is that also is not true. You weren't born a Christian. You weren't, you weren't born a believer in Jesus. You're born separated from God. And so I just asked this, this follow-up questions about that. What I quickly discovered is they actually, they know things about God and they believe they're true, but they, they never have actually made that decision for themselves. They're still relying on their parents' faith or trying to be a good person or, you know, in their self-sufficiency. And so the point is, is not to have a date where you know, like it was, it was June 16th, 1989. It's not to have a specific date. It's that you personally have decided and responded to Jesus's invitation. So we need to get really clear about belief. Belief shows up in the scriptures 250 times and 100 of those are in the Gospel of John. That's why they call it the Gospel of Belief. So what does it mean to believe? Well, let me give you this, this understanding of this that, that has really been around for a couple thousand years in church history around describing biblical belief. And I think this is the most helpful way to to talk about what it means to believe. When you talk about biblical faith, I'm gonna put it on the screen, it's knowledge plus agreement plus trust. So we're gonna walk through each of these. 
What is, what is knowledge? What is, what is agreement? What is trust? Let's start with knowledge. What are the facts of the gospel that you need to know? What's the facts of the good news of Jesus that you need to know intellectually? It's that Jesus is God in the flesh who came into our world, lived a sinless life, became the final sacrifice of all sins on the cross, and defeated death through his resurrection. It has to start with this, but it can't just simply knowing the facts of the gospel doesn't mean biblical faith in this way, biblical belief. And here's a great example. I was talking uh, to my friend. This is, this is back in college, and, and I was visiting him up at the University of Michigan, and he was telling me that he's taken a, a, a class in the Synoptic Gospels talking about the, you know, these very things. And this professor, he's just like, you know, it's kind of shocking to me because this professor knows so much about Jesus, and he knows so much about the New Testament. And then he told us that he's an atheist. I don't think that professor is born again. He knows all the facts about Jesus. He knows all the, uh, he, could, he, he, could t- he, could, he could teach this message, but he doesn't believe it for himself. He doesn't believe it to be true. So it's not just knowledge alone. It's also agreement. Agreement means that you're accepting this as truth for yourself. At this point, you actually accept the facts of the gospel, the intellectual beliefs about the gospel, that the gospel is historically and theologically true, and who Jesus is, but the gospel has gone from awareness to agreement. I believe those things really happened. I believe that those are true, and I believe those are true for me. It's, it's more than that. It's believe in Jesus, but it's agreeing with what he's done. Now, here's where belief gets really confusing for those who have grown up in the church, because I think most people who have grown up in the church or or, or Larry talking about, you know, I went to Catholic school all my life and have heard things about Jesus. Most people believe things, facts about Jesus and they believe they're true. And they're mistaking that for biblical belief and faith. And so I wanna get really clear with the last one. It's all three. And so th- why is that not enough just to know and agree with those things? Well, if you look at James chapter 2, verse 19, James says this in talking about belief. He says, you believe that there is one God. Good. But even the demons believe that and shudder. See, demons have no problem saying this is who Jesus is and we believe it's true, but they, we don't believe that they're born again. So if it's not just knowledge and it's not just agreement, it's, it's got to be all three of these, and then trust has to come in here. And here's what trust is. It's committing yourself to what you believe and have agreement to. With trust, we move into this part of our volition, our, our choices, our will, of saying trust has to do with choosing and acting upon what we believe. Trust takes knowledge and agreement and makes a conscious choice. To trust means to put confidence in. To trust means I have skin in the game. That is why people, you know, we grow up in the church, we have these first two parts of belief and mistake it for saving faith. They know the facts, they agree with those things, but they haven't personally responded in a way that says, yes, I choose that for myself. I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my whole life to him. So let me give a quick illustration that will help in in, in everyday life of how this might come up for you. If you are sick, and you go to a doctor, and a doctor diagnoses you with something, and he says, this is what I, I believe that you have, this is what's wrong, and he lays out the, the, the illness, and he lays out, this is, this is what you have. He lays out the facts of an illness that he says that you have. Okay, so now you have information. 
You, you, might, you might agree and with the knowledge that has been presented to you. But then the second thing that has to happen is, is that you have to accept what the doctor has diagnosed and say, yes, I believe that what you have said is true and that that will kill me, okay? So like I need to do something about this. So the third thing has to come into place. And this is why it's so critical that this third thing comes into place because you might look at the doctor and say, you know what? I, I, believe, I believe that's true, I'm in agreement with you, but I'm not gonna do anything about it because I don't care. Or you know, you're just gonna be apathetic. But if you say, yes, I believe that's true. I believe what you've diagnosed is true. I, I believe that it will kill me. I am now going to put myself under your care and choose the surgery and allow you to perform on me because I believe that that act will save me. That is putting your trust in. That's taking knowledge, agreement, and trust into it. And I think that's just a helpful analogy that in Jesus, God sent his beloved son to take on our sin, to, to live the life that we couldn't, to take on our place. Jesus paid it all. He reconciles us to God when we say, I believe and I trust you, Jesus, that you have done this on my behalf and I want to follow you to make a decision to entrust your life to him, to follow him with your whole heart from your whole life. That, that is biblical belief. That is saving faith. This is a call not just to be forgiven. It's a call to be an invitation to follow Jesus, to apprentice your life after him and learn from him, the savior of the world who wants to teach us how to live with him at the center of our lives. It's an invitation to something. It's an invitation to someone who will change your life. That is the invitation to us all. And Jesus gives it to us very personally. In this moment, I believe the Spirit is bringing to light this for you. I believe that he's making it very clear. This is a personal invitation that you need to decide how you will respond. That's the beautiful thing about what Jesus does. Whoever believes, whoever believes, and so the question remains, do you believe? It's a single statement of truth that contains the essence of the gospel and brings every person to a personal decision. And I want to go back to those people that we heard from part one in the video who were they were talking about there's disruption that happened in their life. And I want to see, I want to show you how they responded to Jesus with belief with their whole life. So when I had children uh, after that, one of the things that I decided I was gonna do was go to church so that I could get my kids in a youth group, turn them into Jesus freaks so they wouldn't become drug addicts, alcoholics, or pregnant. But what God did was he gave me eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe. And slowly but surely I began to see that I was broken. Whenever we talked about the gospel, whenever we talked about a relationship with God, we ended up in a fight. Anne essentially came to me in tears in her apartment one morning and said, I am so sorry. I cannot marry you. I just can't do this. Because in this part of our life, we're just, we're not partners. We're not together. We're different. I headed off to college and I wanted to be a graphic designer. I was surrounded by three guys around my station who happened to be believers in Christ. And they talked about him all the time. Um, I said things and 
and argued with him and even threw stones at one point, trying to throw him as high as I could just to get him to feel something that I was feeling. And in the middle of all that, it, it hit me that I either had to choose him and choose the faith that he wanted for me, to choose his path, to choose his understanding, or to stay on mine. The moment I first believed in Jesus, it happened right here in Fellowship Bible Church on a Sunday in the second row. We were studying the Gospel of Mark, and in chapter nine, Rob covered the unbelief prayer, and I remember it. God, I believe. I started to close my eyes during worship, and I actually had an experience where I met Jesus, and I felt all the pain leave my body. And I remember thinking, this is what it must be like in heaven. Um, so I remember scrolling through Instagram that Sunday afternoon, and an Instagram ad popped up for uh, Two Cities Church uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Um, and I made the commitment, I, I was like, I don't care what's happening next Sunday, I'm gonna be there. That was the church I ended up getting saved at, finding new community and, and made some lifelong friends in, in the small group that I had joined. Right there in her apartment, I knelt down on her living room floor and I asked Jesus to become the leader of my life. Here's the crazy thing, I stood up a different person than the one who knelt down. The guilt and shame cycle of my young life had finally been broken. So on my 20th birthday, I found myself cleaning out all the dirty brushes. While I was doing that, the door opened to the room. Then I recognized Bob's voice and two other of my classmates. Bob was explaining the gospel to them. But I walked around the partition and I said, Bob, I know that those guys didn't have any interest in what you're saying, but I do. And I sat with him for an hour and a half and I asked him questions. It was not just enough to know about God, I needed to know him and respond to him. I started realizing he abides and he didn't go anywhere and he was right there with me the whole time. And so I started abiding with him and life changed. My name is Jennifer and I believe. My name is JB and I believe. My name is Larry and I believe. My name is Ernie and I believe. My name's Joanne and I believe. My name's Mark and I believe. So just like those stories, they came to a point of decision, a point of belief that marked them. And I just want to invite any of you who right now, you're thinking, I, I think today is my day where I actually want to believe. I want to go from I'm not, I'm not a believer too. I want to, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus. Today may be your day of being born again. And Jesus is inviting you into that. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to that. We have, uh, I'm going to throw up this, this website here for those of you for today is the first time that you have believed. We want to help you follow Jesus. And so if you want to pull out your phones, fellowshipbiblechurch.org backslash believe, and we will we want to follow up with you. We want to help you follow Jesus. We want to 
just meet with you. I love coffee and I would love to have coffee with you um, and to just talk about that and what that looks like and, and one of our pastors to meet with you and, and just to be able to help you walk with Jesus. So during the next couple of minutes, we'll just leave that slide up there. So if some of you, you came into the room and, and maybe you're like, you know, I grew up in the church. You know, I, I kind of, I was mistaken. I, th- I thought just going to church and doing religious activities and, and because, you know, I have been a Christian all my life, like I thought that, but you know, I'm realizing I never actually put my faith and trust in Jesus. It actually hasn't gone to that place of beyond just cognitive, but, it, but today I want to do that. I want to give you an opportunity to respond. And then for us collectively as a church, maybe you have been a believer for a long time. Maybe you came to faith when you're young or, or, or within the last couple of months, and we want to give us as a corporate response to be able to say, we believe in Jesus. And so we're going to have a way to do that. And then the last people I just want to talk to in the room are people, maybe you're, you have doubts. Maybe you're, you're like Nicodemus and you're just like, I, how can that be? And I am so glad that you are here. I'm so glad that you're bringing your questions before God. And I want to just keep inviting you to keep having those honest conversations with God. And just because you believe doesn't remove all the doubts because I still have lots of questions. I still have lots of doubts. And so I just want to just invite you to keep coming back. And again, uh, would love to have conversation with you about what that looks like.